So, um, does the church have a future? What do you reckon? Does the church have a future? Um, thanks, Sam. That's good. <laughs> We're done. We'll do the final. Because <laughs> a lot of people would say no, of course, wouldn't they? Um, you know, uh, look around the world. Um, you can see the church facing uh, levels of persecution in some countries that would make it look like it's on the brink of being wiped out. Um, uh, open Doors, the, the charity reported recently that last year, 2,110 church buildings were either attacked or looted or forcibly closed. Um, and, and that around 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. That's about 15 a day during 2022. Uh, a further 140,000 Christians were displaced from their homes or their countries for specifically faith-related reasons. So that doesn't include the hundreds of thousands of Christians uh, that have been displaced for other reasons like war and famine and, and so on. Does the church have a future in places like that? Um, or, or what about here in the West? Because, you know, we've commented many times, haven't we, uh, uh, that our society is shedding its Christian heritage, its Christian ethics, with, with accelerating speed, uh, of course, such that Christian truth and Christian values is increasingly seen in our country, not simply as irrelevant, but actually as immoral, actually as harmful. And, and so hardly surprising then that nominal church-going, cultural church-going, is, is on the decline. You might have seen the 2021 census figures. They were published, uh, or some of them were published at the end of November, showing just a rapid decline in the number of people who now identify as a Christian. I think it was down from 59% to, to 46%. And actually those identifying as non-religious was, was up from 25% to 37%. So does the church in the West here have a, have a future? Or, or are we on the wrong side of history? Certainly some of the church seems to think we're on the wrong side of history because they're increasingly willing to redefine the church's beliefs, either to avoid the threats of a secular culture or because they're becoming increasingly seduced by that culture themselves. So is the church on the wrong side of history? Does it have a future here in the, the very secular West? Well, as the Apostle John writes this book of Revelation, it wasn't the secular West, of course, that was the, the dominant culture then, but it was the mighty Roman Empire, that, that pagan culture which had already been around for 600 years and would be around for a further 400 years before its eventual collapse. And John is writing this book to Christians who are facing both the threats and the seductions of life in that empire. So, you know, if, if we uh, might wonder if the church has a future in the secular West, well, just imagine how these guys are feeling about whether the church has a future against the threats and the seductions of the mighty Roman Empire. Well, John has a message for them, and, and by extension for us, of course, as well. And it's a message from the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. And it's a message to remind them of the fundamental truths of the gospel and to urge them to stand firm in the face of the, th the threats, the seductions that, that they're facing. Which is why I think it's a really important book, actually, for the church today as well. It's a book that shows us with great clarity, I think, the glory and majesty of Jesus um, the reality of life in, in, in the world with its, its rampant evil on the one hand, but with God in the driving seat on the other. And, and, and it's a book that shows us the fabulous future that awaits us if we continue in Christ. Oh, I think it's a really important book. <laughs> but let's face it, um, it's a bit of an intimidating and confusing book as well, isn't it? Um, 
Uh, it's, it could be hard for us to get to grips with. I mean, it's full of all this rather weird and strange imagery, you know, beasts and dragons and a lion that looks like a lamb and fiery lakes and men with sort of fire coming from their mouths. It's a very different style, isn't it, from what you find in the rest of the New Testament? Which means, of course, that I think lots of us avoid it um, because we, you know, maybe we find its meaning a bit obscure or a bit beyond us. Or perhaps um, some parts of the church have become sort of overly fascinated with it. And, and, and you know, sadly, it's, it's sometimes been a, a kind of a, a happy hunting ground for, for all sorts of different, uh, you know, groups of people to identify all kinds of, you know, weird and wonderful ideas in there about the end of the world and, and so on. But I want to suggest that to avoid the book because of its reputation... Um, might be to miss out, will be to miss out on some, uh, I think, a very special part of God's word and, and, and many key truths for, for our time. This is part of the Bible, of course, which means God's preserved it for us, <laughs> for our encouragement and blessing in, in such a time as we live in today. So, so my prayer, I, I think, for this series is that God would use the book to strengthen and encourage our faith in Christ as we see God in the driving seat, bringing about his plans for his world and his people. Um, so we're going to get stuck into chapter one today. Um, just before we do that, it might be helpful, or just at the beginning of that, it might be helpful to do a bit of orientation, um, ask ourselves a couple of questions to find out the kind of book that we're dealing with here. So, so why is John writing this book? Well, if you look at verses one and two, you'll notice that he's writing it because he's got a message from God to give to the church. Um, Have a look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, So John says he's received a revelation from Jesus Christ. So, so this is a revelation from God to John through an angel. And, and John says it's a revelation. In other words, God is making known to John something that was previously hidden. So something's been revealed here through John. And this, this revelation from God, John is to give to the seven churches that are in what was then called Asia, verse 4, Um, but it it is now in what we would know today geographically as kind of modern-day Turkey. So although there's lots of imagery and and symbolism and stuff going on uh, in the book, and we'll try and get to grips with some of that as we go through it, don't lose sight of the fact that at its most basic level, this is just a long letter to seven churches. Okay, In fact, you can see the churches listed in in verse 11. And, And these seven churches were basically suffering from three problems. Okay, they were suffering from persecution, uh, first of all, or at least the threat of serious persecution to come. In fact, you can see from verse 9, John himself is actually living in exile himself on the island of Patmos because he was preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, And some of these churches here that he's writing to, they were already suffering at the hands of the Romans, some of them at the hands of the Jews. Others of them were about to go through a period of severe trials. So these were suffering churches. But that wasn't the only problem they had because, secondly, there was a problem of false teaching around. These churches were being infected with dangerous doctrines, uh, sub-Christian doctrines. In other words, the gospel itself was under threat. And, And so John's warning them to be on their guard. 
But then the third problem that these churches were facing is that some of the churches were increasingly um, being uh, seriously compromised. In other words, they were being seduced. They were being shaped more by the culture around them than they were by the word of God. They weren't just in the world, but they were becoming increasingly of the world as well. And so John is passing on this message from God to urge them to stand firm in the face of persecution, to stand against the false teaching, and to stand up for Christ in the world, even if that meant going against the cultural flow. And if these churches took to heart this message from God, uh, verse 3, then it would bless them. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You see, in other words, this is a book that we ignore to our loss and we obey for our blessing. So that's why he's writing it. But the second question um, is, what's he writing about? And that's where some of the controversy comes from, I I, I guess. But I don't think it needs to be particularly controversial because John actually tells us himself what he's writing about. He says in verse 19 uh, that Jesus tells him to write, therefore, the things you have seen. Okay, those that are and those that are to take place after this. In in other words, the, the risen Christ tells John to write what he sees And actually, much of this book are visions that John sees. And and as we'll see, you know, it's written in highly symbolic language. Uh, Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature, which was a particular literary genre um, of the time, which explained spiritual truth in picture language, using picture language. And and there's a hint there that we're not meant to take the symbolism literally. I think many of the mistakes that people make in in understanding the book come from failing to appreciate the kind of literature it is. It's picture language. Okay, it's written in a particular way, a particular style, uh, to help us understand spiritual reality. And and as we'll see as we go through, a lot of the symbolism in the book comes from the Old Testament. Actually, what doesn't come from there comes uh, comes either from the teaching of Jesus or from the particular historical situation that John himself was in. Uh, when he was writing it. And I think that when we grasp that, we're going to find ourselves much better able to see what the book is all about. But what is it all about? Well, he says in verse 19 um, uh, that he's told to write about the things that are and those that are to take place after this. In other words, it's about the present and the future. In fact, we'll see it's also about the past. In other words... Revelation is not just a book about the future. Okay, it's not a book which outlines, you know, kind of precise historical events that are going to take place before Christ returns. Right? It's not some kind of timetable of events sort of written in code that we have to try and work out sort of, you know, using Revelation in one hand and sort of current events in, in the other. Yes, there are future elements to the book. That, that, that's, that's true. John calls it a, a prophecy in verse 3. But that's not really its main focus at all. In in fact, what we'll see, I think, as we go through the book, is that it's largely about now. In the sense, it's it's, it's what's happening in the world, in the here and now, in what the Bible calls the last 
days, by which it doesn't mean the final days just before Christ's return, but it means the whole period of time between the first and the second comings of Jesus, which is what makes this book, friends, very relevant to us. It's written for our encouragement because the challenges facing those seven churches in ancient Turkey are the same challenges facing the church throughout history and the same challenges facing us today. And if we understand that and so hear and take to heart the letter, then I think there's great blessing to be had. So this is a letter written to struggling churches about standing firm as Christ's church in the whole period of time between the first and the second comings of Jesus, what the Bible often often calls the last days. And as we go through the letter, we'll discover, I think, that there are three big themes that they just keep coming up again and again, uh, which which really get to the heart of what the the book's message is. And so, so our aim in the series is not to kind of go too slowly, Um, through the book but we're going to tackle some bigger chunks of it together so that we can keep those big three themes in focus as we go through the the whole book and and here in chapter one actually we just get a taste of all three of of those big themes Um, so let's have a a brief look at those in in our remaining time big theme number one okay you'll see this through the book but it's here in chapter one big theme number one is the sovereignty of God and, and so the call to trust in God's plan And then big theme number two is the victory of God, and so the call to rejoice in Christ's victory. And then big theme number three is the security of God's people, and and the call, therefore, to believe in in God's promise. So have a look at that first big theme of Revelation, which is the sovereignty of God, where his church are called to trust in God's plan. Have a look at verses four and five. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Uh, And then look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Friends, do you see who God is there? This is the God who was, and who is, and who is to come. He's the beginning and the end, right? He's the Alpha and Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the the, the Greek alphabet. In other words, this God stands over time, outside of time, and over time, right? He's totally in control of time itself. He can't be defeated. He can't be outwitted. He knows everything that has happened and everything that will happen, which means that his plans, which he's bringing about through Jesus, will be achieved. Right? Just take a minute to think about that. Just consider what a revelation that is. Right, what an encouragement that is for a struggling local church, you know, like somewhere in somewhere like Smyrna or Ephesus or somewhere, where they feel the whole might, uh, the oppressive might of the Roman Empire bearing down on them, and they feel so small and pathetic and helpless, you know, like they could be crushed out of existence at the whim of a Roman governor. Right? Think of how you would feel <laughs> as a new Christian in one of those cities. You know, just you and a few other Christians soldiering on in a fragile little church. 
with the might of the Roman Empire railed against you, you'd think you were done for, wouldn't you? You'd think being a Christian was a hopeless idea in a, in a culture like that. You'd be tempted to give up. But then you hear this revelation from God that tells you it's not hopeless and, and you're not helpless because the God of the universe, the Lord Almighty, as, as Revelation often calls him, is both in charge and he's on your side. Right? You hear that God's plans for his people and this universe are unstoppable. Right? They can't be defeated. You read that God is not taken by surprise by anything, you know, even if we are, but that he is almighty and he's sovereign. He's totally in control over both good and evil forces. Friends, don't we need to hear that? Don't we need to hear that today? Don't we need to peek, as it were, kind of, you know, behind the curtain and see who's really in charge of our world? To see things as they really are? Isn't that what we need to hear when, when times are tough? You know, um, maybe this morning, some of us are worried about our personal futures. Okay, maybe it's your health. Um, maybe it's your financial security. Uh, maybe it's a friend or a member of your family that you're worried about. Maybe you're worried about a relationship. Can I ask you, who are you trusting? And is it this God described here because friends the God of the Bible the God described here is the God who stands over history the God who's in control of history and friends he is totally trustworthy and that is such a massive encouragement isn't it when you are going through the mill but, but also this morning some of us might be worried about the future of the church you know, we see some parts of the church in terminal decline. We see governments oppressing Christians throughout the world. We see society, our society even, becoming increasingly hostile towards Christians. We see gospel freedoms coming under attack. We see biblical morality being booted out via the back door, which is what happened in the General Synod by a bunch of bishops this last week, enthusiastically commending what God forbids. And we may wonder, well, has evil won the day? Well, no, it hasn't. Because God is in control. This God is in control. And while some of these things may surprise us, they don't surprise him. And neither do they change one iota. The fact that in all things, even in these things, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Romans 8.28 puts it. Friends, his plans will be fulfilled his purposes will be achieved friends he's sovereign right he's the god who holds history in his hands so we can trust his plan we can have confidence that he won't lose his grip on his church and he will not lose his grip on you either but rather he's working all things for his good purposes he's in control he's on the throne nothing can thwart his plans and that's the theme that we're going to see time and time again in this book. God is sovereign. So trust his plan. There's a, there's a second big theme uh, in the book as well, which uh, is also kind of hinted at here in, in chapter one, which is to do with the victory 
of God. And, and the call here really is to rejoice, rejoice in Christ's victory. And that follows on, really, from knowing God's sovereignty and so trusting God's plan, doesn't it? Because God's plan, of course, is to bring all things under Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's, that's his utterly unshakable, unbreakable plan. And what you see here in chapter 1 is that this victory of Jesus is seen both in the past and in the present and in the future. Have a look, first of all, at his, the victory of his past rescue this this might be a little bit surprising because um i don't know when you think about battles and victories and that kind of language in the book of revelation uh, what do you th- what do you think about maybe some people think about like armageddon something like that where, where where you know some have proposed a kind of future literal battle that'll take place between the forces of good and evil do you know that battle is only mentioned very briefly in one verse in chapter 16 that's all and it's a battle that's over before it started as we'll see when, when we get there. And anyway, I think to see it as a literal battle, I think is to misunderstand what it's referring to. But there is a battle, actually, that gets mentioned again and again and again in this book, but it's a battle that's happened already. See, the battle that John keeps referring us back to in this book is to the victory of Jesus achieved at the cross. Right, have a look at verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. You see, we have been freed from our sins by his blood. That's the victory. And it's been achieved already. Right? We were slaves to sin. And, and we were justly deserving, facing the wrath of God. The, you know, the devil had, it, had us right where he wanted us uh, because we, he could justifiably accuse us all day long of sin. But because Jesus died in our place on the cross and took the penalty that we deserve, well, we are now free, set free from sin. The battle's been won. Satan's a defeated enemy. He can't accuse us anymore because we've been washed clean. We've been forgiven. Satan's power over us through sin and death, it's destroyed. And friends, again and again, those truths are kind of rammed home to us in in the book of Revelation. So, for example, chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that the Lamb, Jesus, has triumphed. Or in chapter 11, verse 15, we're told that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. He's triumphed. Or or in chapter 7, verse 10, we, we read salvation belongs to our God. And to the lamb who sits on the throne. In other words, the victory's been achieved. The battle's been won. It was over at the cross. You know, all that's left is the the, the mopping up operation. Do you see, friends, the gospel, uh, the, the, the book of Revelation is a gospel book. It's about the gospel and the victory of Jesus achieved through his death and resurrection. Such that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us as Romans 8 puts it. Now, of course, we're going to see as we go through the book that that Satan still has the ability to persecute the church and give trouble to to believers. But friends, he's firmly on a leash. Right? He can only do what God allows him to do. He's a broken force. He's a defeated enemy. And one day he'll be totally destroyed. It's only a matter of time. Do you see the point? The point is that the decisive battle has already been won. It's already taken place. It was fought and won by Jesus at the cross. He has the victory. Of course, there's still a war going on. 
You know, Revelation will show us Satan's war against God's power. It still rages, but it's hopeless. (laughs) He and his forces are defeated and they know it. And when Christ returns on victory day, well, he will consign Satan to his death. And we can be absolutely sure of that because the decisive victory was achieved on the cross. You see, his past victory on the cross guarantees his future victory when he returns. So we can see his victory in the past at the cross. But what about in the present? You know, is Jesus really in charge today? Yes. His victory is seen in the present as well, which is precisely what this vision in verses 12 to 18 uh, is all about. Um, Because we can see here, can't we, the risen Lord Jesus in all his splendor Right In all his power, what's he doing? He's reigning supreme, isn't he? And, and notice how John describes Jesus, because it's staggering, isn't it? So in verse 13, he looks like a son of man. That's a reference, some of you will know, it's a reference to Daniel's great vision uh, in, in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, where he sees God himself. In other words, it's Daniel's phrase for God that is being used here to speak about Jesus. And he wears the clothes of a priest and a king in verse 13. His eyes, look, in verse 14, are like blazing fire. In other words, his sight (coughs) penetrates where others cannot see. And and in verse 15, his feet are like bronze. That's kind of displaying his glory. And in verse 16, a sword comes out of his mouth. That signifies the power of his word. And his, his face shines like the sun in its glory. His voice, back in verse 15, is like rushing waters. That, that kind of signifies the authority that his voice carries. You know, have you ever, have you ever stood under a massive waterfall? You know, you, you might get the, the, the point here. The noise is deafening, isn't it? You can feel the power and the, uh, the pressure of all that water. It's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's awesome, a bit frightening as an experience. John's vision of Jesus here is of an awesome figure, right? Don't think little Jesus meek and mild here. Think breathtaking and glorious Jesus. Think the awesome God of the universe, the one who could crush his enemies with a single stroke of his sword. And friends, time and time again in this book, we'll be given a picture of the throne of God and reminded that there is only one king, and it's King Jesus. Um, for, for example, glance down to verses um, 17, 18. See what Jesus says about himself in those verses. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, Jesus who has defeated death is the Lord over death, the Lord over history, and the Lord over you and me. Friends, we must never imagine that our world is out of control. Jesus is in charge of it, and he will bring everything to its conclusion. Notice too, it's this Jesus who in verse 13 walks among the lampstands, and in the book of Revelation, the the lampstand is a symbol for the church. So this is Jesus with his church. He's with his people and and won't leave them or forsake them, do you see? We have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on our side. So no matter what it looks like, we're on the winning team, 
<coughs> and friends, that should be a source of great encouragement. That the Jesus we worship, this Jesus, is the king on the throne. So we see the victory of Christ in, in the past at the cross, in the present. He is reigning now as king. Just briefly, notice the third aspect of that as well, which is seen in his future coming. Might surprise you, another fun fact, might surprise you to know that the return of Christ is not something that's spelled out in tremendous detail in the book of Revelation. It's there, of course. It's there in chapter 2. It's also here in, in, chapter, in chapter 1. Look, um, in verse 7 we read, Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will wail because of him. So shall it be. In other words, Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready. And we need to be ready because all the promises will be fulfilled. You see, he has the victory. It's seen in his past rescue. It's seen in his present rule. It's seen in his future coming. So trust in God's plan and rejoice in Christ's victory. Then there's one more theme in this, in this letter that he kind of introduces us to here in chapter 1. This is to do with the security of God's people. And, and I think the call here is to believe in his promise. And, and that, that should come as no surprise, should it? H- having seen that God is sovereign, having seen Jesus' amazing victory, it shouldn't be surprising to believe that he will keep his promises to his people, should it? And actually what's brilliant here is that God doesn't just save his people. He gives us a job to do. Did you notice that? See how John puts it, verses 5 and 6? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That's actually picking up on a phrase from um, Exodus 19. Uh, verse 6 that, that spoke of Israel. You shall, do you remember it? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what John's saying here is that this is who we now are. As Christians, we are his covenant people whom God has freed from our sins. Verse 6, in order to be a kingdom of priests. In, in other words, all of God's people now are like the priests were in the Old Testament in that we all now have free and unmediated access to God's presence because he's now freed us from our sins by his blood, given us access to him. And he's done that in order that our lives together as his people would now serve the priestly function of bringing other people to God, right? of, of making him known. That's who we are, right? We're not just his children, but we have a role in in ruling in his kingdom and serving as his priests, if you like. Now, that reminds us of our mission, doesn't it? But friends, it also reminds us that we are safe and secure as his people. We're saved and set apart by him. And friends, that means that nothing, spiritually speaking, nothing can touch us. We're his Yes, we're going to face suffering and persecution, quite likely. Yes, we'll get sick and die sooner or later. It'll happen to all of us. But friends, we are safe in God's arms as not just his children, but as his kings and his priests. And that's his promise. And and I wonder, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in the victory of Jesus on the cross, 
Do you, do you believe that promise? Do you believe it? Do you believe that whatever happens in this world, you are safe, you are his, you are loved, you will be kept? He wants you to be sure of that, you know. He wants you to be confident in his sovereignty. He wants you to rejoice in his past victory at the cross so that you will believe his promise that whatever happens, whatever he calls you to face in this world, you're his. So you're secure in him, even in the face of death. So does the church have a future? In a world where it's opposed and often persecuted by the dominant culture that it finds itself in, be that Islam or communism or secularism or whatever it is, does the church have a future when it seems to be in decline here in the West? Because the dominant culture around us that seems so unassailable is, is swiftly abandoning its, its Christian heritage and its morality and, and where parts of the church are following in its wake and, and leaving Bible-believing Christians accusing us of being on the wrong side of history does the church have a future in those kind of times you bet it does because friends john writes this book of revelation from within such times and for such times and with a message from the risen lord jesus for them and for us a message to remind them and us of the truths of the gospel a message to call them and us to stand firm in the face of the threats and the seductions that we face. And most of all, as we'll see through this book, to trust in God's plan, for he is sovereign. To rejoice in his victory, because the battle's been won already at the cross. And to believe in God's promise, for his people are secure no matter what. Should we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that in this cultural moment, just as in any in history, no, no matter how overwhelming they seem, you are sovereign, you are victorious, we are secure. Father, please help us therefore to trust your plan, to rejoice in Christ's victory, to believe your promise. We pray in Jesus' name.